captured every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for a one-hour period, and then on Tuesday and Thursday, a graduate assistant came in um, to help us think through things. One of those lecture days, he said, we're going to have a quiz today. He never gave a quiz. He just lectured. So we're all scrambling, and he said, no, you don't need pencil and paper. I'm going to whistle five trumpet calls from 19th century operas, and I'm asking you to identify the opera. And the one who gets the most right will get a prize. Well, he started whistling, and uh, four times through, none of us knew the answer. Finally, on the fifth trumpet call, one young woman in the class got it right. And so he said, you are the winner of today's quiz, and the prize for winning this quiz is a copy of my textbook on differential equations, a book written by the finest mathematician in the United States. Notice the modesty of the geographic scope, he said. And so I realized Professor Flanders is brilliant and he's eccentric, He's not humble. That much was clear. That's a problem sometimes for academics. Sense that they've accomplished a whole lot, they know a whole lot, and they're really not very humble about it. Here's one of the ironies in my experience of that, though. In some ways, in some ways, it seems the ones who have the greatest problem with humility in the academic world is in the evangelical world. The way it shows up is this obsession with, with making sure we use the title doctor. It shows up in all sorts of ways. So much so that when, when I went back to, uh, to school and midlife to do that PhD, I thought maybe, maybe what I can do is publish parts of my sermons and call it Dr. Fowler's Extract. Some of you will know the background of that, others you'll have to look it up via Google. But seriously, I it's, it's only among evangelicals that I have experienced this obsession with making sure we use the title doctor. When I, when I did that doctoral coursework in Toronto, at the Toronto School of Theology, in an ecumenical, generally liberal context, the professors were John and Roger, Dan, Nobody was obsessed with using the title doctor. So I've, that's, I've puzzled over that. Why would it be that in the evangelical world there would be this obsession with the title, even among those who've been granted an honorary doctorate? Some of whom I have heard say to other people, well, you should call me doctor now. There are all kinds of people in the world with honorary doctorates, athletes, politicians, business leaders, and they never use the title. I, here's my speculation. 
Among evangelicals, we, we have a sense that we are outsiders in the wider world. We're not a part of the cultural elite. We don't have status in the wider society. And, and there's a subtle attempt to somehow get it. I could be wrong on that, but I, I suspect there may be something going on there. And I, I think we, we may have a hint of that kind of thing in, in this final chapter of the first epistle of Peter. As, as Peter concludes with his final words to those whom he's called exiles, uh, sojourners, pilgrims, strangers in this world as it presently is, there, there's a, an, a theme of humility that makes it, its way through his concluding words. I suspect then and now, there's a tendency, if we feel that we are exiles in the wider world, we somehow want to be somebody. And we need a reminder about humility. So here are Peter's words. 1 Peter chapter 5, to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you're willing as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble and oppressed. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that your fellow believers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. And so Peter begins the, his final word, his final comments by addressing the elders of the community of believers. And at the very beginning of that, we see a note of humility because Peter describes himself as a fellow elder. Peter could have used the phrase apostle of Christ to emphasize his authority. The fact that he was an apostle of Christ, a specially authorized representative of the Lord, is the very reason why we receive his letter as holy scripture, finally authoritative, divinely inspired. But he doesn't use the title. He says, I'm one of you. I have 
a ministry of shepherding and care and oversight along with you. And so to the elders, he says, shepherd God's flock that's under your care. Pastor God's flock is, is another way to translate that same term. Shepherding is what elders do. Whether, whether they are vocational elders who give their, their work life to it or whether they are not, shepherds are called to feed, to guide, to protect. In other words, to focus on the needs of the believers more generally. Not themselves, but those whom they're called to care for, to guide, to teach, to protect. And then, as Peter develops his thought about the way the elders ought to function, he describes it in three pairs, a negative and a positive. So the first is, not grudgingly, but voluntarily, because you want to. There, there we have it in, in verse 2. Not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be. You, you actually want to serve as a leader. I, it probably was never said, but in, in the church context I grew up in, the impression I got was that if it's God's will for me to be a pastor, I, I will almost certainly not want to do that, and he will have to drag me kicking and screaming, just like he grabbed the apostle Paul just like he grabbed Saul on the road to Damascus. So in my circles, it was even the language of, I surrendered to preach. Like, I, didn't, I don't want to do this, but I have to. And then one day, I, I read 1 Timothy 3, verse 1, where Paul says, if anyone desires the work of oversight, desires to be an overseer, an elder in the church, he desires a good work. And I realized, okay, Paul is saying, if I have a properly motivated desire to serve God's people by leading well and caring for them, that's a good desire that God has put into my heart. I don't know what it's like here at Crestwick Church because I'm just passing through for a while. In my church, we, we find it to be a bit of a challenge to get good men in our church to agree to serve as elders. There, there are a lot of factors in the background of that, but it's a bit discouraging. So, so Peter's saying, if you're, if you're a man of character, you, you have the ability to do this, then, then God calls you to serve as a leader not because you say, oh, I've got to do it, somebody's got to do it, because you want to serve by leading. And then the second pair is, at the end of verse 2, not for wealth, but eagerly for the ministry itself. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Now, Many of you may be saying, why in the world would anybody want to be a pastor to get wealthy? What we do know is this. In 1 Timothy 5, Paul says, 
to the, uh, render double honor to the elders who lead well, especially to those who, who labor in, in the word and teaching. Labor is in sort of like labor as we use it to work, your work life. In other words, and then he, he supports all that by quoting from Deuteronomy and from Jesus in Luke 10, the workers worthy of his wages. So, the especially denotes some of the elders who are in a special way set aside to do it vocationally, and they're to be paid. So, some people can get paid for being an elder. And Peter says, don't do it because you want to be paid well. Be the kind of, a kind of man who would say, I want to serve in this way whether I get paid or not. In, in many ways, that's, that's how I have always felt about my own role as a theologian, as a professor in the seminary. I, I'd be, if I had all the money in the world, I'd be happy to do it for nothing. Sometimes the administration probably thought, well, maybe we can arrange that. I, I don't know. <laughs> but, but, I've, but I've never missed a paycheck in that role. Now, when, when Peter says, you should just be eager to do it, not, as, not for gain, that's not an excuse for the church to say, Lord, you keep him humble, we'll keep him poor. That is not the point. But his point is, do not let your motivation be about wealth, about money. It reminds me of the old story about um, the pastor who was serving in a fairly small church and, and a, a large church invited him to become their pastor. And he said to his wife, um, while I pray about this, you go upstairs and start packing. Don't do it for gain. Do it because you want to serve. And then finally, the final pair in verse 3, not in a domineering way, but leading as examples, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. You lead by example. In other words, He's saying to elders, you, you don't lead by saying, look, God gave me the power, so I'm telling you this is the way it ought to be. It's not about saying, I'm telling you, go and do that. It's about saying, join me in, in responding obediently to God's call on us as believers and as the church. A, a friend of mine who, uh, who teaches preaching describes it this way, that the role of the, the elder preacher is the lead listener. The preacher isn't saying, I'm telling you how it is. The preacher is saying, join me in listening to what God has to say to us. As Peter writes this, he no doubt has in mind what we find recorded in John 13, at that last Passover meal Jesus ate with, with the apostles. 
When Jesus took on the, this, the pose of the servant with the basin and the towel and he washed the feet of the, of the apostles and he said to them, you do as I have done to you. You call me teacher and Lord and I am, but I've been among you as one who serves. I'm asking you to wash one another's feet even as I have set the example. And thus, Peter will tell us in verse 4 that Jesus himself is the chief pastor, the chief shepherd. All, all of us who have privilege of serving as elders in God's church now in this world are under shepherds, seeking to bring the word of Christ to bear upon his people and lead them by example. So he's talked about elders in relation to the community. Now he talks about believers in relation to other believers in verse 5. And, and there he says, you, you who are younger, which, which may be a way of saying all, all the rest of you who are not set apart formally as elders, submit yourselves to your elders. Accept their leadership. Every community needs leaders. Otherwise, we have disorder and anarchy and chaos. And so respect them as leaders. But it's broader than that. He says, all of you be humble toward one another. Because, and here he quotes from Proverbs 3.34, because God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to those who are humble. Peter might also, if he wanted, he might, might could have quoted from Proverbs 6, where we have one of the places in the Proverbs where we have six things are, are an abomination to the Lord, yea, seven things are an abomination to the Lord. These are the things the Lord hates. The first thing mentioned is the Lord hates haughty eyes, the look of the proud. And the seventh and final one in that list is the one who sows dissension, who sows discord in the community by not being humble toward the rest. And so Peter is saying all of you, all of you need to show humility toward one another, to be concerned about the needs of others above your own, to defer to others, to, to serve rather than to dominate. Humility is crucial, Peter says, if we're going to experience God's grace. Maybe I, I was telling friends on the golf course this last week, maybe that's why I like playing golf. God gives grace to the humble and golf humbles me. I recognize every time I play, once again, no matter how much I think I can do it, the way I saw those guys do it on TV, I can't quite do it. It really is humbling. And just when one part of the game goes well, other parts go south. So maybe it's a good thing that I experience golf that way because humility, Peter says, is a means of grace. 
And then finally, he, he talks about humility of believers in relation to God. Verse 6, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Now, it appears he's, he's saying a couple of things here because he talks about our, our current experience and then the ultimate experience when God lifts us up. The current experience, which, which he's been talking about throughout this epistle, is the experience of suffering and, and persecution, of marginalization in this world, in this age. So, humbling ourselves under God's mighty hand means I accept the reality that, that my present suffering is part of God's providential, sovereign will. God isn't just watching these things happen. Already back in chapter 3, verse 17, we saw Peter refer to the fact that it may be God's will that we suffer for doing good. It's not his moral will. He isn't calling anybody to persecute someone else. But in God's sovereign, providential control of all things, that is our present reality. And humility means I can accept God's providence in the way he disposes my circumstances. But I also trust in his mighty hand because he will lift us up in due time. And as Peter puts it at the beginning of the chapter, we will not only be witnesses and participants in some way in his suffering, but we will share in the glory that is to come. We humbly, he says, must cast our anxiety on God, knowing God cares for us. And we also need to be humble enough to recognize that, that we are in a battle in this age because he says your enemy the devil is, is like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He wants to use your challenging circumstances to turn you away from confidence in the Lord our God. But he, he reminds us that whatever whatever our individual sufferings may be, they aren't unique. Our, our brothers and sisters around the world, he says, are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And he says, resist the devil, stand firm in the faith. James, in his epistle, chapter 4, talks about the same idea, and there he says, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Fight back. However you have to do it. If you need to verbalize it out loud and say, devil, away with you, do it. Fight back. It's fascinating to me that in Ephesians 6, when Paul talks about the armor of God to, to equip us for this spiritual battle that we're, that we're in against the forces of evil, the, the, the description of the armor is, is frankly just, a, it's about the basics of what it means to be a, re, a, a believing child of God. It's about the gospel of peace. It's about, it's about faith. 
it, it, it's about the Word of God. It's about prayer. It's not exotic and highly unusual things. It's as if Paul is saying there and Peter is saying here, you push back against the devil. You say no to the devil's temptations to turn away from the Lord because of your challenging situation. Humble yourself under God's mighty hands. When you feel anxiety in your spiritual battle, cast that care upon him and entrust yourself to his care, knowing that he's definitely going to give you battle. As James put it, you resist the devil and he will flee from you because the one who's in us is greater than the one who is in the world. So Peter felt that as he brought this letter to a close, there, were, there was this underlying theme of humility that, would, that was important. So it makes me ask myself, all right, are there evidences of humility? It's one of the ironies, is it, isn't it? We, if you know you're humble, then I suppose you're almost certainly not. That's one of the ironies here. But nevertheless, we need to ask ourselves probing questions like, do I avoid calling attention to myself? Do I use my abilities to serve others? And, and am I willing to serve without recognition? Do, do I see and admit my faults and my mistakes? Do I build others in the community of believers up rather than putting them down? making myself look better? Am I willing to submit to authority in the church and in the wider world, as Peter has described it? Do I recognize all I have as a gift from God rather than somehow my own creation? And am I willing to accept God's providence in my situation? What we need to remember is that the call to humility is a call to follow Christ, who's the paradigm of humility. The Apostle Paul, back in Philippians 2, when, it, when he exhorts the believers there to live in humility toward one another, says, you must, you must adopt the mindset of Christ, who, although he continued to exist in the very form of God, was willing to empty himself, humble himself, to take on the form of a servant. Eternal Son of God became human, one of us, apart from sin. And he humbled himself obediently, obedient to the will of the Father, all the way to the cross. As Peter teaches us here, God will exalt the humble in due time. And so because Jesus obeyed him all the way to the cross, God vindicated him when he raised him from the dead and, and, and exalted him at his right hand and calls everyone everywhere in the universe to acknowledge that he is Lord. And so when Christ calls us to humbly obey God and serve others, 
He is leading by example. We're going to remember that now in the way that the Lord commanded. So I'm going to invite the worship team to rejoin me here um, on the stage now. As we, as we prepare and make sure you have your elements for uh, communion, we're going to remember the Lord in the way that he instructed us. A couple of weeks ago, we, we saw what Peter teaches us about baptism as the divinely ordained way in which we, we signify our entrance into the believing community. The Lord also provided an ongoing way to signify our faith in him and our commitment to be the community of Christ's followers. So I read these words of our Lord taken from Luke 22, beginning at verse 14. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it, eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And taking, after taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you, for I tell you I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And so the Apostle Paul, picking up on this in writing to the, the Corinthian church, in chapter 10, says to us, Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? In other words, we, we signify our attachment to Christ as we, as we eat and drink in this way that he commanded. And so Paul says in chapter 11, I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And note this, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Some of us have the great privilege of verbally proclaiming the Lord in the gathering of God's people, but all of us, as we eat and drink, proclaim the saving death of our Lord. So I invite you to take the, the bread now. And we remember the words of our Lord. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
And the Lord Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so we proclaim the Lord, who is our hope, as we eat and drink, and we now proclaim that in song. <laughs> 